touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Volkelbaum. And today we're going to talk about some unmanned aerial vehicles, UAVs, also known as drones. Drones. So uh, drones have been in the news a lot for multiple reasons. Some of them are fun reasons and some of them are not so fun reasons. Right. They are a really interesting development in robotics that has a lot of very positive applications and unfortunately a lot of negative ones as well. Right. So we're going to cover kind of the whole whole spectrum, right? We're going to look at everything from the the silly and sublime to the pretty serious. Pretty serious and scary really. Yeah. Uh and and also talk about why is there a debate about drones. But so to start off, uh Jonathan, what exactly is is a UAV? Okay, so unmanned aerial vehicle. You can essentially say that this is any sort of flying device that doesn't carry a passenger in it that is used for some other purpose. Usually we go one step beyond what would be a typical RC airplane or RC helicopter. You wouldn't really call that a drone because there's not really anything on there other than the fact that this is something for you to pilot around and have fun with. So like a remote control air shark, maybe maybe not a drone. Yeah, probably not a drone. But if you were to put, say, a camera in that remote controlled air shark and you could actually spy on people, that would be a Air shark drone, probably not the most uh, subtle of, of unmanned drones that you've ever seen. Uh, but it, maybe you were to create something like uh, a camera on it and also it'd have some sort of fabric display, which is a possibility. Let's say you have a fabric display and then on the underside, it can actually show you pictures. That would be like a crazy kind of art experiment that I would expect to see at Burning Man. Or Dragon Con. Or I, Dragon Con. I really want that now, actually. Yes. But anyway. To- totally something that could be a possibility. And so when we're talking about drones, we're usually talking about something that does something on top of just flying around. Now, that might mean that it's got some cameras and sensors on it that allow it to do some things like navigate through spaces or give you a look at a, a particular area. Maybe it doesn't have those sensors. Maybe it just carries stuff. And we'll talk about some of the the crazy delivery drones that have popped up, sometimes literally, across the globe. But uh, usually these are controlled remotely by a pilot using some sort of interface that connects via radio signal to the vehicle's navigation and control systems. Or the vehicles themselves are autonomous, meaning that they can use their own sensors. Pre-programmed. To... Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. You have to program what it's going to do ahead of time. It's not like they have artificial intelligence and can... You know, it's not RoboCop on wings. You know, <laughs> I suppose it could could hypothetically be one day. But... One day we mm-hmm. might get there. But right now we're talking about devices that you, you give it a pre-programmed set of parameters. Perhaps it's to fly to a specific coordinate and then fly back. And it's using things like the GPS sensor to navigate to where it needs to go. Uh, but otherwise, once it, once you've set it in motion, it takes control of itself. I think most drones tend to be under human control, although we have drastically increased that capability. It used to be that it was all line of sight. In other words, the controller had to be able to see the the drone in order to maintain control. That's not the case now, well, but we'll uh, get into that. In increases in miniaturization and GPS technology has has really pushed that field forward. Certainly, yeah. Satellite communications has made it possible for us to have ridiculous kinds of control over unmanned aerial vehicles. Mm-hmm. So 
they can often stay in the air for longer than a day, particularly when we start talking about some of the ones that are used in scientific research mm-hmm. and military applications. They, they can, can go for up to up to I've, I've heard up to 48 hours yeah. in without refueling in some cases. Yeah, exactly. So you can have 48 hours of consistent flight time. And now, obviously, if you're talking about a manned control situation, you then are also talking about having shifts of Switching pilots. off teams of pilots, right? right. And there's, most- there's usually, for, for this kind of thing, two pilots, one to actually do the controlling, assume, assuming that it's not being uh, autonomously controlled, right. and a second uh, watching the sensory readouts uh, exactly. and helping the pilot, therefore. Right. And then some some cases you're talking about even larger teams, but we'll talk about some of the more complex ones in a bit. Uh, so they also can vary pretty widely in size and sophistication. So a typical tiny little drone, you might think of like the parrot drone, which is a quadrocopter drone. It's the kind that has the, the rotors on the four corners. Mm-hmm. So it gives it a very stable flight path. And you can even do some crazy trips, uh, tricks rather. Well, you can do crazy trips too if you wanted to. But crazy tricks, letting it do things like uh, barrel rolls, Although it's more like a, a very quick flip, because obviously you lose stabilization once those those uh, those those uh, blades go vertical as opposed to horizontal, and then uh, you can control that with an iPhone. So right. you can actually use a smartphone to control a Parrot drone. Uh, I was talking earlier today about how I had a really crazy schedule today. So today, Jonathan's schedule included a phone call with FEMA. Uh, a talk about electronics in the FAA, which was an episode that we recorded earlier today, although when it publishes, is a mystery. And then uh, also talking about drones. And so a friend of mine said, oh, so is it uh, is this all in preparation for talking about how FEMA could control a drone with a uh, an iPhone? Because the Apple event was also the day that we're recording this. I said, you know, you're making a joke, but that's totally possible. <laughs> because the Parrot drone allows you to control it with an iPhone. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, these, these are small, you know, commercial devices. You can, you can go out and buy something yeah, like this. Yeah, yeah. You can actually buy one right now. And uh, I remember the first time I saw one at CES several years ago, maybe 2010 or maybe even earlier. And I was really impressed. And it included a little camera on the, the device itself. So it could allow you to look around and you were, you were able to play games with other people who had Parrot drones and, do kind of a, a virtual shoot 'em up type thing that would be reflected with your actual drone's real world location. So it's kind of neat stuff. But if you want to talk about the other end of the spectrum, now that's on the simple side, right? That's that's a very small portable device that the average person can use, and you're using a very simple interface to control it. The other end of that spectrum is drones that are the size of an actual, like, manned aircraft. Like a small business jet or so, I think, is the size that yeah. Reapers are, which yeah. I think are the largest military drone in Reaper use right now. Reaper and Predators are both right. pretty big. Yeah, yeah. Because Predator, if you see a picture of a Predator drone, you might think, uh, what's the size of that? Is that, like, maybe, you know, half the size of a car? No, those are much bigger than cars. Yeah. Uh, but they, they if... From casual glance, if you were near one, you might think, well, that's an interesting jet. Where's the cockpit? Because I don't see where the person would look out. Because it looks blank. Yeah. But it's, in fact, a uh, a drone. And so you end up flying it using all the different sensors and cameras that are on it as the guidance. Although for aerodynamic purposes, it's still shaped more or less the way that a passenger airplane would be. Right. I mean, and that just makes sense for pure physics, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like... You know, theoretically, we could have it shaped anything that would fly, but why would you change it up so much if that's the most efficient you know, shape? 
I kind right. of want them to paint, just, just go ahead and paint like a Cylon toaster <laughs> yeah. on the end Have of like them. a little LED yeah. that goes back and forth yeah. and, and it, it just constantly chants by your command. That's from the 1978 superior version of Battlestar Galactica. Um, we're, we're really going to have to have a geek fight about that someday, Jonathan. That's, anyway. <laughs> that's fair. It, it, there will be a reckoning. So with those kind of military t- style drones or the ones that scientific endeavors are using, these large, large drones, those are the ones that need multiple people to really control it. And also they usually have a link up where you can control it from quite a far way away. But we'll get into that a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there's some rules about drones, though, right? Yes. Some some countries, uh, China, for example, and this will become important in a moment, uh, it's, it's basically legal to operate commercial drones anywhere that you want as long as you get local authorization. Uh, here in the U.S., um, drones are authorized in some military airspace and to patrol our borders. Also, there's some um, 300 public agencies that can use them at low altitudes away from airports. Right. It's essentially the same sort of rules that uh, that guide RC uh, RC flight uh, vehicles, right. like anything sure. like a remote controlled plane or remote controlled helicopter. There are specific rules that that are, are dictated by the U.S. government, and most of them are the same as for the drones. Sure, sure. And now um, the FAA, uh, the federal. Aviation Aviation Administration. Administration. Thank you. I always want to say aeronautics, and that's not quite the right word. Um, Does is working on new regulations right now. They're supposed to come out in 2015, and at that point, we're probably going to see a lot more commercial and private drones flying around. Yeah, it's going to be one of those those things where uh, there'll be there may be some more specific rules to guide this sort of thing. Uh, you know, this is, again, another one of those examples of how technology evolves faster than the legal than legislature, system can. Yeah. Sure. Because, I mean, that I don't know <laughs> if you've ever noticed, but the government does not move at the speed of light. Uh, certainly not by Moore's law, no. No, 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 no. So uh, so we see these developments happen faster than the way agencies can uh, legislate them. But that is coming. The, the 2015 will be interesting to see exactly how the FAA handles that and and how, you know, is it going to be really restricted? Is it going to open things up? Will there be specific agencies that people who operate drones will have to report to? We don't know. Yeah. We have to wait. It's a it's it's part of a larger like sixty three point four billion dollar initiative for the FAA to to update traffic control systems and expand airspace. So Yeah, it's important stuff. So let's talk about some uses, fun uses of uh, some drones, like scientific research. Yeah. So uh, there are a lot of organizations out there that are using drones in some way or another to conduct scientific research, and that includes NASA and NOAA. Those organizations are both using drones to study inhospitable environments here on Earth. Right. You know, lots of places that it would either be uh, overly expensive or difficult or dangerous to get humans out to to take a look at. Right, yeah. If we can get an unmanned aerial vehicle to fly by, say, a giant crater that's remote and difficult to access otherwise. Oh, to say, or in a volcano, or at an oil spill, or... Exactly, yeah. So here are some of the examples, and we've mentioned a couple of them. Oil spills, volcanic ash, that kind of stuff, looking at these sort of things. That can be hazardous. Uh, But also uh, using uh, uh, drones to explore repositories of ice in Greenland, Antarctica, and Alaska. In other words, trying to get a real look at what uh how how these giant areas of ice are doing because the melt off is happening pretty quick quickly but it's hard to get a good look at it cuz these are pretty remote areas 
UAVs can give us a much closer look at that. Uh, NASA is using them to study hurricanes. So we're looking at the way hurricanes develop and sort of the paths they take and also how hurricanes, how storms can change when they start to encounter different types of land masses. This hurricane season in particular, NASA is using a lot of drones to um, to just watch the way storms are developing and, and send information back. Yeah, they're using what are called Global Hawk drones, which are the same type of drones that are used in some military surveillance operations. Uh, Global Hawk is not the most prevalent of the drones that the military uses, but it's sort of one of the precursors to what we tend to use today. Uh, we've also seen agencies use these drones to study wildfires and to get an idea of where the wildfire is spreading. Uh, again, obviously a very dangerous situation to send people into. And, you know, the worst case scenario with a drone in this kind of situation is that you lose an expensive piece of equipment. But the worst case scenario in other situations is that you lose a human life. Right. So that's obviously one of those reasons why it's very uh, attractive for scientific study. Also, as a bonus, these things can can fly lower, slower and more quietly than um, than a typical manned aircraft. Right. So you can get a, a longer look at things. And perhaps if you're using it even to study things like wildlife, it's not as not likely disturb to disturb the environment. Yes. Right. Uh, and, and these research vehicles can vary just like the UAVs we talked about at the top of the show. And, and Lauren, I think you found an interesting UAV that's being used in scientific research, something that's actually using solar power. Uh, right. There's something called a Pathfinder that was built in the 1990s, uh, for civilian purposes, like collecting data on, on weather and the climate. Um, it's, it's reached, it's, it's reached a record of, of height for solar powered aircraft, which is Hmm. What's that? Uh, 67,350 67, feet. Yeah, which is something like 20 kilometers. Wow, 20 so, kilometers. That is that is pretty incredible elevation for an unmanned vehicle. Right, and you know, not not too shabby. And that kind of data is is important. Yep, yep. Uh, so other uses for drones include things like historic research. I came across an article uh, that was interesting. It was talking about Peruvian archaeologists who were using drones to explore ancient ruins without disturbing the area with actual vehicle or foot traffic. So oh. they didn't want to disturb an area that had a lot of uh, cultural and historical significance. Also, they want to use drones as a way of monitoring a site. So not just mapping a site, which has turned out to be incredibly useful. In fact, I, I read one archaeologist report that said, that they were able to do in a few days the same sort of work that normally would take them years oh, wow. to map out a site. Wow. But they also want to use it in order to monitor a site and keep uh, people from taking advantage of it. There are uh, examples of people who have squatted on land that's directly adjacent to historic sites, either as a means of trying to monetize that or just because they figure that by being close to something like that, they are less likely to be displaced. So it's kind of uh, uh, it's this idea of trying to protect the area before people try and leverage that in some other way. Sure. Um, uh, you also had a note about using using this for pest control. Yeah. Florida's looking at using drones for pest control. Now, they're not actually talking about arming drones with some sort of pesticide and then blasting it at, at some bugs. kind of laser mosquito zapper or something like that. No, no, they're outfitting all the drones with these two giant robot arms that come together in a slapping motion. And then they're just going to squish them one by one. 
Actually, that's not true. No, it's <laughs> Florida's using looking at using drones in a way of controlling the mosquito population. Now, mosquitoes obviously can carry lots of different diseases that can be very harmful to animals and people. And they mostly they mostly breed in very shallow pools of water. Yes, yeah, still shallow pools of water. That's where you get the mosquitoes breeding. You get all the mosquito larvae and. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Florida having lived there for so long. But, yeah, uh, only 14 years, so there's, there's only some, a little bit. There's some some there's like a little puddle called the Everglades that's out there, where uh, there there can a lot of it's a large area, right? We're talking like lots and lots of square miles or kilometers, if you prefer, that could potentially have this kind of shallow water where mosquitoes could breed. Now, traditionally, what would happen is Florida would send out. Uh, people to go and cover this ground and look for places that would be mosquito breeding grounds and then treat those areas so that uh, they could control the mosquito population somewhat. But that's time consuming and expensive. And it's it's hard. It's hard to send people out and really, you know, covered all that ground because yeah. it really is a great deal of ground. There's alligators. Yeah. And, and sometimes crocodiles if you get far enough toward the coast. Anyway, the point being that uh, there are many things that could potentially cause someone harm or just be difficult to navigate around. Um, and uh, not to mention things like boa constrictors and anacondas. But more importantly, drones can be used to deliver cakes. OK, yes. All right. So we're going beyond pest control here. We're going into using drones to deliver things, including Possibly cake, although that may or may not also be a lie. Uh, no, no. Drone delivery is something that has popped up a few places, and it's mostly, I would argue, a uh, kind of a, a publicity stunt. It's, it's a marketing thing. Yeah, it's you know. not not meant as actual like here here's a serious a, service because it is so much more expensive and time unreliable, and, and yeah. it's still very work intensive because you still have to have someone navigating the drones, and in most of these cases, the drones are remote controlled, so there's actually. So you have to have a car or a person following the drone. Right. Where you could just have that person deliver whatever it is, but that's not nearly as cool as having this rotocopter thing drop from the sky and deliver your pizza. Yeah. And by the way, pizza is one of the things. In fact, Domino's Pizza, the Domacopter. Domacopter. This was, this was in the UK, right? Yeah, it was in the UK. It was a joint effort between Aerosight, which was the company that built the drone, uh, a company called Big Communications, and another company called T Plus Biscuits. Tea and biscuits. That's, that's cute. It is cute. And very, very British. Um, and so this was a sort of a, a publicity stunt where they showed a, a, a quadcopter, very similar to something like the parrot, uh, drone that you could, uh, you could look up online. It was a quadcopter that could carry a bag that would contain pizzas, uh, a heat bag. You know, it's one of those that is lined with a reflective material on the inside to try mm-hmm. and keep as much heat in as possible. And I saw a video where they loaded one up with two pizzas and then flew it over some fields into a different, uh, uh, like neighborhood and landed it near a guy who pulled his pizzas out and then it flew off again. Uh, very clever, but again, mostly just a marketing kind of stunt here. It's not something you're not going to get robot delivery of pizzas because like you were saying, Lauren, you had to have a, a human pilot who had to have a, a line of sight on this to make sure that they were not going to pilot into a tree or, <laughs> or drop, a person or, or drop or... the pizza in the wrong place. I mean, mm-hmm. you, nothing is more irritating. I think you'll agree than when you order pizza and you find out that, you know, you're 
You're, My pizza drone has delivered to the next house over. Right, yeah. Like all those people who listen to fish all night long, ate all your pizza. You know what I'm talking about, Lauren. Anyway, so. All the time with those pizza drones. Yeah. Uh, also in, in Shanghai, China, a company called InCake was, was delivering cakes in a very similar way. Yeah, another delivery company in China called SF Express was using drones to deliver packages. The packages could weigh up to 6.6 pounds or just under three kilograms. And the drones themselves could fly at an elevation of 330 feet or just over 100 meters, which is pretty high for one of those little quadcopters. Uh, supposedly that, that InCake company got, got shut down or the, the drone delivery system anyway got shut down by Shanghai police when they, they got worried calls in from the populace saying like, I am in danger from this cake drone. There, there are aliens. Save me. There Save aliens, me from this cake drone. Aliens flying over the city and they're dropping confectionery on us. Uh, and they were like $300 cakes. I'm still, I'm a little bit obsessed with this. Yeah. I, I'd eat some flying cake. Uh, so in Philadelphia, there was a cleaner, a dry cleaner, uh, the Manayunk cleaners, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, but any kind of Native American names from the Northeast are completely beyond my ability to pronounce. Uh, but anyway, this was a dry cleaners that used a drone to de- deliver dry cleaned uh, clothing to customers. Uh, but that one required two operators. It, in- it required someone who was holding the controller and also a spotter because, oh, right, because there was no c- camera on it. Right. Most most of these rigs have included cameras. Right. Yeah. But... Like the one, the Domino's one had a camera aboard right. it. So you, if, if you watch the video, you can actually see it from the the drone's point of view as it flies across the English countryside uh, delivering pizza by 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 flight by robot, you know, by yeah. robot. Uh, there's also the taco copter which I really hope this becomes a thing because I want I, if I could get my tacos delivered by robot I don't think I'd ever leave the house um, it's a San Francisco area Bay Area invite only app where you can order tacos and have them delivered via drone although it's more or less just a concept right now. It's not really a service. And again, this is one of those things where they, they are talking about waiting for the FAA's regulations to really, you know, it, it doesn't make sense to pour a lot of money into a business that might not be able to operate depending upon what the FAA's regulations are. Right. Sure. That goes along with your next note, which is for a burrito bomber. Yes. Darwin Aerospace's burrito bomber. It's a drone that drops burritos on you, but the burritos also have little parachutes. little parachutes. Yeah, so they, you you get parachute dropped burritos. I would also be I would welcome I would welcome a delivery of burritos by a parachute over my place. Um, I do not welcome people just pelting my place with burritos. I want to be clear about this. I want to go home and find a bunch of burritos splatted against my house. You you guys, I have to admit, I think that that would be hilarious. Yeah. What's your address, Lauren? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, th- th- these are these are some of those kind of gimmicky, clever things that we're seeing. But I don't think that it's necessarily going to become a real delivery service anytime soon beyond just the the curiosity. C- uh, certainly not until here in the U.S. Uh, the FAA passes those new regulations. Right. The, the China one, I can almost understand because at least the SF Express one was all about delivering in a, a city in China that was known for its massive traffic congestion. Right. It's a city of about 8 million, I think, that, that was on a relatively small territory. And uh, and it was in the testing phases as of the last time that I read an article about it. Yeah. But it seemed like it was operating within parameters as of yet. Yeah. So, so and, and since and since it is legal in China, 
basically. Yeah. yeah. In that case, I can kind of see it happening in the sense that, well, there are some use case scenarios where it would actually be more efficient to have someone who perhaps is on like a, a, a fairly tall building and can navigate something that way. But even then, it's, you know, it's a little it's a little weird. Um, so that kind of covers the civilian and uh, corporate uses of drones, as well as the research institute uses of drones. But there's another use that we need to cover, and that, of course, is military. But that's a huge, huge topic. So before we get into that, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. All right. So here's the part of our con- our conversation where we really do get pretty serious and talk about uh, a controversial use of, of drones. And there are a couple of different ways that the military uses them. Um, and and one is certainly far more controversial than the other. But first, let's look at sort of the history of unmanned aerial vehicles in the military. Because um, it goes back quite a long way. Yeah. In fact, the first one is arguably, you can argue this is the first use of UAVs in military. The first one actually predates powered manned flight. And that would be on August 22nd, 1849. And I know what you're all thinking. Like, how could there be a, a drone in 1849. It wasn't so much a drone as it was this concept of I want to be able to uh, to attack a certain target and I want to do it in a way that's going to minimize risk to my resources. How do I do that? Well, the Austrians figured during uh, the first Italian War of Independence, which was a war that was fought between the Kingdom of Sardinia and the Austrian Empire for control, control of Italy. Over, right. They figured, well, we want to attack Venice, but we don't want to risk our own resources. We're going to use 200 balloons, and each balloon is going to uh, carry a bomb, and those bombs will have uh, some method of detonation. I have read different reports, uh, nothing that was completely confirmed, but one was that there was actually uh, a wire that would come back that they would apply uh, an electric charge to, and that would detonate the bombs. Others said it was just a fuse. But at any rate, the balloons were meant to float over toward Venice and then detonate there. Uh, From what I understand, it was not a very successful attack. Uh, I think only a handful of balloons actually made it toward Venice, but a shift in the wind meant that some of them just started floating right back toward the Austrian lines, which is not what you want to see when you're launching an attack. Of course, if they had complete control of when those bombs detonated, then that would be... That would just mean it would be a failed attack as opposed to a catastrophe. To a danger, yeah. right. Um, during the American Civil War, a patent was filed for a similar time delay fuse mechanism balloon-based bomber that I don't think ever went into use because they couldn't ever quite figure out how to make that fuse work properly. operate in a non-hazardous way. Right, where you're you you know you, you're not just as likely to blow up yourself as you are your target. Sure. Uh, in the 1880s, cameras were used on kites during the Spanish-American War for reconnaissance purposes. Right. Uh, the British Royal Navy began to experiment with radio-controlled Queen Bee. This was, was a- this was a, a drone, uh, a radio-controlled drone for mostly for target practice. Ah, uh, yep. Okay. But uh, but but it could fly like a hundred miles per hour, which I I feel like is a pretty impressive drone capacity for the time. Mm-hmm. Um. During World War II, the Nazis developed what was called the Revenge Weapon 1, or, or V-1 more commonly, which was an unmanned bomber that was responsible for um, for over 900 British civilian deaths. Mm. And that was when, uh, wait, what? 
bomb-wielding bats? Am I reading this note right? So, so Franklin D. Roosevelt approved research into releasing bomb-wielding bats from airplanes. And, and ideally, what the way this would work would be that the, the bats would seek shelter in buildings, chew through the string, separating themselves from the devices, and then the device would detonate, you know, blowing up the enemy's buildings. In, in the only test that ever happened that I've heard about, um, a bunch of hibernating bomb-laden bats were dropped to their deaths from an airplane. So the bats were asleep and then just were dropped and then they splatted. Wow. Well, we salute you, splatted bats. Uh, so in the 60s and 70s, the U.S. used the uh, AQM-34 Ryan Firebees and, elect- and Lightning Bugs. So what? These are re- reconnaissance robots? Yeah, yeah. Uh, they were they were controlled from a host plane. Um, those lightning bugs were were joystick controlled, actually, mm. and those were used for reconnaissance in China and Vietnam. Uh, they had a lot of problems with these reconnaissance vehicles, particularly in in harsh weather conditions, and then that was one of the things that would uh, really spur the military to try and develop more robust unmanned aerial vehicles. It also was one of the things that critics would point out as saying this is kind of a fool's errand. Like we're spending a lot of money developing and building these things. But if they crash just as frequently as they come back and it's not because of enemy encounters, it's just because of the weather, then there have to be better use for our resources. So uh, in fact, you could argue that drone technology isn't as far along as it could be because of things like this. Sure. Israel, in fact, is was the first country to to develop very modern, advanced drones in the in the 70s and 80s. They developed uh, gliders uh, along the same the same concept as the quadrocopters and octocopters mm. that we have these days called the Scout and the Pioneer. The The Scout had live video and, and like 360 degree um, views. Views. So I could see an entire, like all the way around the actual vehicle itself. Right, right. And um, the pioneers the U.S. acquired from Israel for use in the Gulf War. Gotcha. So now one of the main uses the military uh, has for these drones is for surveillance and reconnaissance. And in those cases, you don't have to necessarily have weapons aboard the drones. So. Oh, absolutely not. And I think that the development of most of these in, in the U.S., anyway has has been for reconnaissance purposes mm. and and that weaponizing them has been a secondary step taken afterwards right right and i think i think when it comes to the controversy while reconnaissance and surveillance of course has its own set of, oh, of issues sure i would argue that i think most people when they hear about drones are specifically thinking of the weaponized versions we'll talk about those in a minute um and obviously those have their own set of of Really big issues that I think merit debate, in fact. And I think all of it merits debate. But I think those in particular are ones that we really got to take a very close look at and ask some very tough questions and maybe finally get some answers because that, that's part of the problem. That but, would be good, too. But but so so these these drones these days, thanks to satellite uplinks, have you know, you can get live video of a place that would be dangerous to send manned forces into. Right. And not only that, but you can have real time control of a drone by someone who is nowhere near that actual that actual uh, zone. So, for example, if you need to run a drone through a war zone so that you can get real-time look at what the conditions are on the ground, you can send one of these drones out, and the pilot may be on the other side of the world. 
Uh, in fact, in the United States, there's a, a desert in Nevada where you can find some of the trailers that that the U.S. Air Force uses. And the CIA also has its own drone program uh, where the pilots are nowhere near where the, the actual uh, drone is, which means that the risk to pilot life is is completely negated. You don't have to worry about the pilot being put in danger uh, if even if the drone flies into a truly hot spot of of dangerous activity, and you can hypothetically save military lives um, out in those areas by you know getting information about what what what's out there, right. you know like, what, what the terrain can, is what like, they can expect what kind to of encounter. enemy forces sure. are there. Sure. Yeah. So it's you know really meant to maximize data while minimizing risk to human life, uh, and these are less expensive than military aircraft or satellites. So it's considered to be a better, uh, you know, better investment in that sense as well. So not only are you minimizing the risk to human life, but it's not as expensive as something like a U-2 spy plane or a spy satellite. Absolutely. Now, there's the weaponized version, which is the truly problematic one. Not that, not that surveillance again is, you know, we can't give it out a free pass, but the weaponized ones are the ones that have really come under scrutiny recently. Um, these are battle drones, so they're armed for combat. They actually carry weapons, usually in the form of either missiles or bombs or some combination thereof. And usually more lightweight missiles or bombs than you would find on on manned aircraft. Yeah. However. Yeah, like Hellfire missiles. I mean, th- these are still weapons designed to absolutely. do damage. And, absolutely. Uh, the very first use of uh, armed drones were uh, in the Balkans War. Um, the Predator drone is an example of a U.S. military uh, unmanned aerial vehicle capable of firing weapons. So uh, it's not the only one. The U.K. has the Reaper drone, which also can be weaponized. And, and we do use Reapers in the U.S. as yep. well. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, the, the, the Predator, wa- Predator was originally meant for surveillance and right. was later added. Yeah. In fact, the first thing that was added to it were uh, targeting lasers. And that was before it even had weapons on the Predator. It right. was just sort of a a next step in the evolution of the Predator from surveillance drone to battle drone. And keep in mind that the military and the CIA both use these different variations. It's not that all drones are weaponized. Uh, that's not the case. Some of them are and some of them aren't. Right. Um, it all depends upon the parameters of the mission and uh, and what it is you are trying to actually achieve. So uh, usually the way this works is that you've got – Three operators who are controlling the drone. One of them is controlling the flight systems. Another one, like you said, Lauren, is monitoring those cameras and sensors. The third acts as a communications officer between the flight crew and the ground operations that are closer to the actual war zone. So that's to keep that line of communication open so that if you notice something with the drone where it's going to affect operations on the ground, you can get that information to the people who need it. Uh, immediately, and they're not going to be surprised by it. Um, so perhaps the best-known battle drone, I guess, would be, the, at least in the United States, is the Predator. Um, you've probably seen pictures of it. it it's it's pretty spooky looking, uh, and it is larger, like I said, than you would think. If you see just a picture of it flying, you don't really have anything necessarily to give you the scale of this thing. But uh, I've seen pictures of a person standing next to him, and it does look like, you know, like a, a fairly small but normal manned vehicle. I mean, mm-hmm. it looks like there could be a pilot in there if there were a cockpit. There right. just isn't. It's 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 weird because the CIA was able to really develop 
a predator program. And when I say weird, I mean that you would think that would normally fall under the purview of the United States military. Right. And the Department of Defense did spend some $3 billion in drone research in the 1990s. However, since the CIA, basically since, since the bombings of 2001. Yeah. The World Trade Center and or attacks, I suppose you, you would say. Since then, the CIA kind of took over. You kind of used a loophole. Yeah. What, what really to... was happening was that the military had run into kind of a, you know, they, they had consolidated a lot of departments. And so the whole drone program now fell under a sub-department of a sub-department of a department. And it was one of those things where it is really hard to get any kind of funding for the drone program. The CIA could sort of sidestep that. And because they're not a military organization, they could end up uh, requesting under their budget their own drone program. And so that's exactly what they did. Um, and that's that's part of the reason why it started as, as a reconnaissance issue and since since 2001 developed into a targeted strike program. Yeah. So these pre- predator drones can hover for uh, 40 hours before needing to refuel. Um, they are kind of a they were kind of the evolution of earlier drones developed uh, called Amber and Nat. These were drones that were used previously, but had had their own limitations, including things like weather issues with, uh, you know, inclement weather. So the Predator was meant to withstand that sort of stuff. Uh, it was built by a company called General Atomics, and uh, it uses a SATCOM link-up. So that's why you can control these all the way out in Nevada, while the drones themselves are flying around perhaps in Afghanistan or Pakistan or something like that. Uh they were first flown in June 1994 in the Balkans uh, under Operation Nomad Vigil and then in 1995 in Operation Deliberate Force. And in those initial phases, uh, it was just surveillance, like we had said. But the Air Force uh, and CIA both began to develop their predator piloting programs. The Air Force's is called the 11th Reconnaissance Squadron at Indian Springs Auxiliary Airfield in Nevada, which later became known as Creech Air Force Base. Uh, and tends to concentrate on on missions in places like Afghanistan. Uh, in 2001, the military began to test the Predator drone as a weapon, and by October 7th, 2001, armed Predator drones were deployed in the Middle East, and that was very much in response to the September 11th attacks in 2001. Uh, prior to that, they were just being used as reconnaissance, but those attacks kind of spurred the development of weaponized drones and put them on the fast track. And on February 4th, 2002, we had the first use of a CIA-controlled Predator drone using a weapon. And what had happened was a drone operator had identified a, a potential target. They saw a tall man in robes, and uh, it seemed to fit the description of Osama bin Laden, which obviously was a top target of the CIA. And so they, the believing that to be Osama bin Laden, the drone, the pilot of the drone, they were authorized to open fire. And they, they fired a, a a hellfire missile. And, uh, it was actually three civilians. Um, none of them are, were identified as being connected to any enemy forces whatsoever. Um, they, they had been gathering scrap metal at the time. Now, they had been gathering scrap metal that were from old pieces of missiles, but they were, from what I understand, trying to sell those in Pakistan for about 50 cents. So it turned out that these were 
appeared to be innocent victims, although the United States government uh, continued to say that that they felt that they got that the that firing on the targets were justified. They just didn't know who they were, which I thought was a weird way of putting it. That seems like a poor justification yeah. to me personally, and that that is kind of what was said by many people afterwards. Right, and this is this is illustrating very clearly. And you know, keep in mind, this is the first use of the CIA using a, a predator drone as a weapon, and the very first use is a is misidentification, a tragic mistake, a tragic mistake, and that that illustrated very much the the criticism that a lot of people had. It's that multiple on multiple fronts. One. Uh, in this case, the, they were in a zone that had been under uh, contention in the past. So perhaps the war zone question we'll put aside for a moment. But the the real question is that uh, if you have a weapon where you are in no danger at all. The, the, the operator of the weapon is in no danger. Right. There's no risk to the operator whatsoever. Does that lower the bar to using the weapon? Because you don't have to worry about anything, you know, any kind of direct consequences uh, as far as a life or death situation, meaning that are you more likely to fire a gun if it means that there is absolutely no way the other person's going to fire back? And that uh, and if, furthermore, are you not going to take time to assess the situation responsibly? Right. right. If you think that you have a target, are you going to act uh, you know, rapidly because you think that you have the opportunity to take the target out rather than to take the time you would uh, need to assess the situation. If your life was at risk, obviously, you would be assessing the situation very carefully to try and determine your best chance of success and survival of that event. And maybe in that process, you might notice if someone is not who you thought they were, in which case you would abort the mission and no one would die. Um, so there, there, these were some of the objections that were raised, saying that this is making it too easy to kill people. And then on top of that, if it's outside a war zone, because the CIA was essentially given carte blanche to go and uh, go after what a lot of people have called the kill list, a list of people that the United States government had identified as top level threats. Uh, if the CIA were to use an unmanned aerial vehicle to take out one of those targets in a place that's not a war zone. So this is not someone who's a soldier fighting a war in the traditional sense. Does that not amount to assassination? So how is that any different than, say, sending out somebody with a sniper rifle to take another person out in the middle of a city? Uh, and, and, you know, there's, they have no benefit of any sort of trial or formal charges. It's just, it's just a political assassination. In this case, instead of a, a sniper with a rifle, you're talking about a pilot using a predator drone. And that in reality, that's not any different. So wouldn't that mean that this is under international law illegal? And and furthermore, isn't it something that shortly before the attacks of September 11th, the, the U.S. came down on Israel for for using drones for assassinations? Yeah. And so this is I mean, it's, this is very tricky. We've got we've <laughs> we've got government officials on record as saying this is not something we should do. And then. Immediately, immediately doing, doing that, it, uh, authorizing it. Um, um, the and, a- and, you know, certainly the the fear of terrorism at that time and, and continually is is an understandably serious. It, it's a issue. powerful motivator. Absolutely. It's a powerful motivator. And sometimes that means going to a course of action that perhaps in hindsight, we would say this was not the right choice. Right. Uh The American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, condemns these actions and have said, outright that they are essentially assassinations, that people are being 
killed when they are, are not in war zones and that's without charge or trial. And they've submitted several Freedom of Information Act requests to the government regarding missile strikes on various targets throughout the world. And they've cited that in many of these cases, civilians have died, children have died as a result of these uh, these strikes. And um, they also have kind of met with a lot of uh, non-answers from the government. They they await the responses. You know, they're, they're going through the official government channels and not getting much response. Right. In March of 2013, Pitch Interactive released a report. They, they had gotten their information from the uh, New America Foundation saying that um, the casualties from, from drones in Pakistan alone totaled some 3,105 people since mm. 2004. And that, that of that, um, 175 deaths were children, uh, 535 were adult civilians, over 2,000 were this gray area of, of other. They had been deemed a, a military age-appropriate men who had been termed military combatants, but whether or not they were actually involved in in any nefarious military wrongdoing was kind of like, meh. Yeah. Um, and that only 47, um, 1.5% of those deaths were high-profile targets. And there there had been somewhat under a hundred high profile targets from what I understand. And so having forty seven deaths from that list is is huge. Sure. And and however, oh my goodness gracious, that's that is just so many people. Yeah, it's th- this is this is an incredibly you know, emotionally charged topic, obviously, and and should be. I mean, this is, again, why we say there should be debate about this and that there needs to be very close scrutiny over when it's appropriate or if it ever is appropriate to use this. I mean, obviously, anytime we're talking about warfare in any capacity, uh, we're talking about the tragic loss of human life that kind of comes hand in hand with warfare. The the problem is that warfare itself has changed dramatically since the the you know, early 20th century when we had two sides line up on trenches and shoot at each other. Now identifying who your enemy is and where that your enemy uh, happens to be is much more complicated. We don't necessarily have huge uh, battalions of soldiers that we're having to, to aim at. It's, it's, it's gotten to be a very messy situation. And so we've tried to come up with some solutions to address that. The problem is that the solutions may not truly be addressing the issue and, in fact, could be causing far more harm than good. And that's where we have to sit there and really look at how we're using the technology, uh, who is being affected, are we causing more harm than good, and if so, then what can we do instead of that? Because right. obviously that's a course of action. You cannot, you cannot in any good conscience continue that and hope that there's going to be a positive outcome. How can there be a positive outcome if you're not hitting who you want to hit and the people you are hitting are completely innocent. You're really there's or or if you've got such a high loss of innocent life connected to your targets. Yeah. I mean, that's how can you criticize another uh, government or regime or however you want to define it for their behaviors? If your own behaviors appear at least as right. If, if you, not if you more, considered an acceptable loss of life to kill the entire family of right. someone who you're targeting. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously this is, and this is obviously, like we said, very tricky. It's not, it's not like we're trying to say that there is some easy solution that, uh, absolutely you know, not. We and, switch to, and, but, and these, these high profile targeted people were, were, 
committing atrocities. Absolutely. Yeah. And right. so. So it's, it, you know, obviously by international law, the, the argument is that what should happen is that every effort should be made to apprehend the individuals, put them on trial, and then have them face their crimes in a court of law, uh, as opposed to uh, kind of striking out and trying to to eliminate them, uh, whether it's in a, a war capacity or otherwise. Um, whether or not that's correct also, I guess, is a matter of debate. It has to be answered by all the different countries involved. And it, like I said, this is pretty, pretty sticky stuff. It goes pretty far outside the realm of just talking about how drones work. Uh, but we really wanted to talk about this because it's one of those topics that has had a lot of conversation around it over the last year or so. Absolutely. And, and I, I did want to say that in addition to, to those military uses, uh, uh, drones have also been used, for example, to detect, uh, detect bombs. Sure. Which is wonderful and terrific. And, right. you know, in, in the future, they could possibly be used to create wireless networks in disaster areas that will significantly improve uh, disaster relief. Sure. Yeah. There. So it's not again, just like any technology. We, we've said this a lot on the epi- on various episodes of tech stuff. It's not the technology that's good or bad. It's how we put it to use. We have to be responsible uh, users of technology. And that goes all the way from the individual in the case of a parrot drone that has a camera attached to it. You know what I'm talking about. Or whether we're talking about a, a military program or a CIA program, uh, that level of responsibility is something that we cannot ignore or take for granted. I really do believe that. And now I'm going to responsibly tie up the end of this podcast by letting you guys know that if you have anything you want to share with us, you have a topic that you think we should tackle, Maybe you have your own thoughts about the way that drones are being used throughout the world. Maybe you want a pizza. Let us know. We probably can't get a pizza to you, but we're happy to listen and, and, and chat back with you. Send us a line over at techstuffatdiscovery.com or drop us a note on Facebook or Twitter. You can find our handle there at techstuffhsw. And uh, there's something else. I always forget. It's um, Tumblr. Oh, right. It's because I don't do that one. We has a Tumblr. You, you did. You did start it and then promptly forgot that it even existed. Yes, our Tumblr handle is also techstuffhsw. All right. So track us down and uh, take us gently by the shoulder. Look us in the eye and tell us what it is you want us to, to cover next because we genuinely want to know. And Lauren and I will talk to you again really soon. By the way, just do that virtually. We don't really want you coming up to us. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 